podcasting from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, known as the City of Bridges. This is Knights of the Revolutionary Leader, conversations of influence and change. I am your host, Christy Knights, C-suite executive coach, psychotherapist, professional speaker, and best-selling author, the revolutionary leader in business and life. It is great to spend another episode with you, and boy, do I have an amazing guest today. I am so humbled to welcome Bob Berg from The Go-Giver. He is a national bestseller. Let me just share some words about Bob before we get started. In their best-selling business parable, The Go-Giver, and then the follow-up, The Go-Giver leader, Bob Burke and John David Mann challenged the conventional wisdom about success. Now they're back with a new, equally compelling story about the power of genuine influence in business and beyond. The Go-Giver Influencer, a little story about a most persuasive idea tackles the paradox of achieving what you want by focusing on the other person's interests. No, not in a way that is self-sacrificial, but rather in such a way that all parties benefit greatly. This results in both immediate and long-term success. Bob Berg speaks all over the world on topics related to the go-giver, as well as what he calls genuine influence. While his total book sales number well over a million copies, his and man's original book has sold itself over 700,000 copies and has spurred an international movement. Their new book, however, The Go-Giver Influencer, might just be their most important book of all. Welcome, Bob. It is great to have you on the show. Hey, Christy. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I absolutely love the Influencer. It is such a great inspirational book. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. So share with me, Bob, a little bit about your journey to, to Go-Giver and how that came to fruition. Well, on a professional level, I began as a um, broadcaster, first in radio and then on television. Uh, I wasn't particularly good on television. I was in news and, and really wanted to be in sports <laughs> and uh, really was not a journalist by any means. I was 24 years old and didn't have a real interest in the news. And uh, I found myself not in broadcasting anymore. And I had what I call graduated into sales. Uh, I enjoyed it, but I, I floundered for the first few months because I, I really didn't know anything about selling. Uh, and the training where I was was kind of negligible. But fortunately, I was in a bookstore. And, you know, this is 40 years ago now. So this is quite a while ago. It's actually when bookstores were more known for books than they were for coffee or, you know, <laughs> yes. uh, other things. And, um, I, and I came across a couple of, of great books on selling, which inspired me just because I had no idea there was even such a thing. Books on how to sell? I, I didn't even realize that was a thing. So yeah. I began studying them and, you know, reading, studying, applying. And, and in a very short period of time, my sales began to really do well. And that kind of told me that if you have a, a system, a methodology for accomplishing a goal, it makes it a lot more doable. And I began to really, really 
take up sales and, and personal development and all those things that sort of come along with it. And uh, it was a, a good journey. And eventually I was sales manager of a company and from there began teaching others how to do what I was doing and kind of morphed into a speaking career, which I've been doing for quite a while now. And part of that is, is uh, writing books. Yes. So have you always been a writer since the time you were a child? No, not really. And I, I never really thought I'd write a book. In fact, the first one I wrote, which was in the mid 90s, was a few years after I'd started as a speaker. And I wrote that strictly for utilitarian purposes. People who I knew who were speakers said, you know, Berg, you've really got to write a book because it will make you more marketable. You can get higher fees. You'll be better positioned. And and then they were right. I mean, that is that is the advantage of, of writing a book. It does give you credibility. It gives you gravitas positioning in the uh, marketplace. So uh, that was the only reason I, I wrote that. I had really had no desire to. But after that, the most of the books I've written after that were really more because I felt I had something to say that I wanted to say, that I wanted oh. to share. Yes. And uh, so, so yeah, I've sort of morphed into a speaker who from a speaker who who writes as a way of furthering his business to a a writer who happens to speak sometime part of what i do is business coaching and oftentimes i will suggest a book for someone who's trying to build a speaker's career and mm -hmm. they oftentimes are shy about it feel like they yeah. can't do it was there ever a time where you felt insecure about writing or hesitated well, I mean, I, with me, and I can't speak for everyone, of course, but for me, there's always insecurity when you do something that you haven't done before. You, you certainly want to do what you can in order to uh, overcome the fears. <laughs> but, but I think for most of us, there's some type of fear. We ask, well, gosh, I mean, there's so many books out there. Should I be writing it? And and fortunately, I was able to get past that. And, and I'll tell you, when, when I'm asked that from speakers, a, a big question I'm, I'm often asked, and you, I'm sure you get this too, and, and that is, well, but the book on this has already been written, or, you know, many people have written on this topic, and that's true, but they haven't written from your personal perspective. And I think that's really the key. If people who you coach are listening to this, you know, I would say, take her advice. She knows what she's talking about. And you can write this book and you can write it from your personal experiences. There's, you know, there's basically nothing new uh, out there, but it doesn't matter <laughs> because, because it, it hasn't been done from us, from our perspective. Absolutely. So share with our audience, what are some steps you take whenever you confront fear in your life to overcome it? Well, I think first it's acknowledging it. Uh, unless we're really conscious of it. And, and when I say acknowledge it, I mean really grab onto it because we can have a, a nagging feeling of fear and sort of try to avoid it, but just not take action. So instead, I think we have to, to come to grips with it and say, I'm scared. You know, I have a fear about this. I don't think I'm good enough or I don't think I have what it takes to do this. Then we go through, okay, well, if it's something I, I, if it's something that I'm, I'm fearing that that's an issue, let's, let's now look at it logically. And this is, by the way, where a coach comes in a lot of times, right? Because they'll come to you because they have an issue and they're just too emotionally involved with themselves. I mean, it's a human thing. We're all like that. Absolutely. And, and so what a coach does uh, is be able to look at it from a point of view where, yes, you care and you care about them, but you're not emotionally attached 
Mm-hmm. And because let's face it, as human beings, we are so close to ourselves, it's often difficult for us to even see our strengths. And that's why I'll ask people who I, you know, whether it's a coach I happen to be working with or whether it's you know, a close friend or someone who I, whose opinion I trust, because I want to find out, you know, their thoughts. Is this something that's just, you know, me uh, that I'm kind of putting on myself or is there something there? Because right. there, there could be so you know, sometimes a fear is very well warranted. <laughs> Other times it's not. It's not always negative to have fear. Oh, no, absolutely. And so, uh, I, you know, now we say, all right, well, so if this is warranted, can I do the work to become qualified to do the thing? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if so, then if it's worth it to you, then you do it. And if not, you don't. But if you do kind of come to the conclusion that, yes, this is something you can do, and this is something you probably should do, and it's a good step to take, then you just have to take the step. You, you don't know, you know, my dad always, always said, he'd always ask me this when I was a, a kid, he'd say, who is a brave person? Or he'd say, who is brave? And my answer was supposed to be, uh, that person who is smart enough to be afraid and mm-hmm. still do their job. <laughs> yes, right? I mean, if you're not afraid and you do something, you're not particularly brave. You got to still give that person credit, but it's not bravery. It's not courage. Right. Right. Bravery is when you are, when you do have fears mm-hmm. and yet you do what you need to do. And we know that the best way to conquer fear, once you, uh, again, once you know you're prepared and that it's the right decision is to take that action. Great, great. So Bob, can you share with us in your personal life, has there been a time when you have overcome fear in a way that you felt empowered? Well, you know, I've, I've actually, in a certain way, always had a lot of fear. I, I grew up with and, and still have to this day OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, mm. and I was hit pretty hard with it. And when I say OCD, I don't mean the type where people say, oh, I'm so OCD about that. That is not OCD. That's not obsessive compulsive disorder. A person may be obsessive about something. They may be compulsive about something, but that's different from the chemical imbalance in the brain. That's OCD. A person can, you know, succeed because of being a little bit obsessed or compulsive, but no one succeeds because of OCD. They succeed despite OCD. Uh, so that's something I, you know, I grew up with, of course, growing up, uh, you know, I'm 60 years old. So when I was growing up that no one knew about OCD mm. or very few people did. I mean, it was right. in its infancy of even being a thing as far as people understood. Yes. Uh, it wasn't until I was in my mid twenties that I was even diagnosed with it. Oh. So, so there was a lot of fear. OCD by its very nature brings about a lot of fear. So I've lived with fear. Yes. Um, I've had to, I won't say get over it because I don't think you do get over it, but I've had to live with it and I've had to do things despite having those fears. Yes. Yes. Can you share with the audience how the OCD has affected your life? Oh, (laughs) OCD overtakes your life basically. Mm. And so, you know, it's thank goodness that I've been on Paxil for quite a while and that softened it. Um, I was never able to really get through exposure therapy, but I would recommend if you can start young enough or whenever and do exposure therapy with a trained doctor who specializes in OCD, because from what I've heard from other OCD sufferers, it absolutely does help. No, I mean, OCD is a, you know, it's a combination of intrusive, unwanted thoughts, which Mm -hmm. are obsessions and compulsions, which are things you do basically 
as some magical way of either getting rid of or over uh, overriding the obsessions. It's absolute craziness. However, it's not crazy because you know it's crazy. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's the, kind of the catch-22. And o- a person with OCD understands that these thoughts are absolutely crazy. They don't for a minute really think they're true. Mm-hmm. But yet we're powerless to do anything about it. And if you don't have OCD, you simply can't understand that. It right. will not make sense to you. And, and that's okay. I don't mm-hmm. want you to understand. I don't want you to have it. And I don't want, so if, if it means by not having it, you won't understand it. I'd rather you not understand it. Absolutely. But, but, yes. but you do need to be aware that someone who you love may have it. Mm-hmm. You need to try to be empathetic and to, you know, to, to get them assistance. Now, the, uh, there are various organizations, the Obsessive Compulsive Foundation. I think it's IOCDF. Yes. Uh, in, uh, dot org. Uh, they have lots and lots of resources and they would be a wonderful resource. Uh, and there's, and there, there are others. If you or someone, you know, may have this and you want to check that out, that would be a good place to, to begin. Great. Great. Can you share some of the symptoms that you have struggled with for the audience to be able to relate? You know, I, I won't get into the, the various thoughts and obsessions okay. I've had, I, I, it's just not something I would, I would ever do, but it yes. will just say it's, it's very debilitating and okay. it attacks you where you care most. Thank you so much for being willing to share about that. I think that although it can be debilitating, like you had said, it also, like you said, can, people can be successful despite. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you are such a fine example of that with your many accomplishments. So talk to me about the Go-Giver Influencer. Um, It is a powerful book. Oh, thank you so much. This is a, uh, a, a, it's a business parable. So it's a short story and it's the fourth, uh, it's the third parable in the Go-Giver series, the fourth book altogether. Uh, The first one, the first parable was the Go-Giver uh, the second parable was the go-giver leader. This one's the go-giver influencer. We did have one called go-givers sell more, which is sort of an application base mm-hmm. uh, of, of the original go-giver. This one uh, focuses on, on influence, on how, to, how to, to work with or deal with people effectively in such a way that you get the results you want while making other people feel genuinely good about themselves, about the situation, and about you. In other words, really being to connect with another person on both an intellectual and a heart, emotional level, so that everyone comes away from the transaction significantly better off than they were before. I think we're seeing really a transcending in leadership. Yeah. We are seeing a greater level of genuineness, um, a call for transparency and vulnerability. Can you share with us your five secrets of genuine influence? Sure. The, the first one is to master your emotions. Mm, yes. And, uh, you know, the sages of old, and, and this is another one my dad used to uh, bring up to me all the time for me to answer, <laughs> that they, they, they asked, who is mighty? And their answer was, that person who can control their own emotions and make of an enemy or of a potential enemy a friend. 
And this is really where it all begins because it's only when we can control our emotions, when we're in control of ourselves, that we're even in a position to take a potentially negative situation or person and turn it into a win for everyone involved. On the other hand, when we allow someone else based on what they say or do to emotionally push our buttons, right, and cause us to make ourselves frustrated or, or helpless feeling or angry, right? Yes. Uh, not only are we not able to be part of the solution, uh, we're actually just as much a part of the problem, if not more so than, than they are. Mm-hmm. While, we, while we all sort of know this and we all you know, tend to respect that person who's, who can keep maintain self-control, how many sayings are there about the respect we have for the person who can keep their wits about them when everyone around them is losing theirs, right? I mean, and, and yet, hey, we're human beings. It can be tough because we are emotional creatures, Absolutely. It's, it's how we're built. Now, we, we'd like to think we're logical. <laughs> and uh, to a certain extent, of course, we are. But we're pretty emotionally driven. We make major decisions based on emotion. And we back up those emotional decisions with logic. We rationalize, which we could say yeah. simply means we tell ourselves rational lies. And we do this to justify that emotional decision, doing that thing we know we shouldn't really should not have done uh, or allowing ourselves to become defensive or emotional when we know it was counterproductive, but we don't want to blame ourselves. So we, you know, we, we rationalize. We're not saying, by the way, that you should deny your emotions or that you should forego your emotions. First, that wouldn't be logical because we are emotional creatures, right? So it wouldn't be logical to deny our emotions. But the other thing is there's no reason to have to. Uh, Emotions are a wonderful part of life. They bring us joy. They make life worthwhile. No, by all means, uh, have your emotions, but make sure you're the master of them rather than they being the master of you. Or as one of my great friends and mentors, Dondi Scumachi, puts it, by all means, take your emotions along for the ride, but make sure you are driving the car. Yes. You're at the wheel. You're steering. Your emotions are with you, but they're in the passenger side and their seatbelts are, are safely fastened. Very good. That, that is amazing. No, thank you. Yeah. Um, And step two, you talk about step into the other person's shoes. Yeah. So you and John use somewhat of an odd suggestion, which is to listen with the back of your neck. Sure. And let me explain why. And this is so important because we say, you know, step into the other person's shoes. That sounds easy enough. It's certainly an old saying, right? Step into their shoes. But then you think about it. Most of us have different size feet. So it's difficult to step into another person's shoes. And what we mean by this is that we all come from our own different ways of seeing the world, Uh, our own beliefs. What is a belief? Well, a belief is a subjective truth. It's the truth as we understand the truth to be, typically about the way the world works. We all have our own belief systems based on upbringing, environment, schooling, news media, television shows. You know, we see the world. Most conflict. Most conflict is the result of two or more people seeing the same thing from different viewpoints. And so, Christy, we need to, if we're going to be able to step into their shoes, we need to be able to, to know what they're thinking. And the only way that can happen is by asking questions. 
I guarantee as the great coach you are, you do that all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, we ask questions and then we listen. But as, as one of the mentors, because in this story, there are two mentors and two protégés, as one of the mentors, George, says to his protégé, Jillian, listen not just with your ears. That's surface listening, right? That's hearing. That's the physical part. Mm-hmm. Listen with your posture. Listen with the back of your mm-hmm. neck. In other yeah. words, really put your whole being into listening to this person. Now, when you do this, two things will happen. One, you learn a lot more about them, right? Because you're not listening in order to talk. You're not listening in order to come up with the perfect thing to say. You're listening to understand. Yes. (laughs) When you do this, that other person, they sense that. And they feel listened to. And they know they've been listened to. And they're much more receptive to you. Yes, that makes total sense now. Number three is set the frame. Can you talk to us about setting the frame? Ah, this is so important. When you set the proper frame, you're basically 80% of the way there. And here's what I mean. You know, again, let's define a frame. What is it? Well, a frame is the foundation from which everything else takes place. Uh, my favorite example of a, of a frame, and I, I just don't know how many times I've repeated this story, but I, I love it. I was at, this is probably three or four years ago now. I was at a Dunkin' Donuts restaurant enjoying some coffee and reading a book. There's a little boy, a toddler, probably two, two and a half years old. He's running around the restaurant and his parents call him back over to the table. So he starts to walk over and suddenly he takes a spill on the floor, he, he falls. Now he didn't hurt himself, you could tell, but you could also tell that he was absolutely shocked. He was surprised at what happened, he did not expect that. So what's the first thing he does? He looks at the two people in the world he trusts most, his mom and his dad, in order to get their interpretation of the event. What happened, happened. He wanted to know, all right, what happens next, all right? Now, I, I truly believe that had his parents gotten upset and panicky and run over and, oh, no, are you okay? He would have started to cry. But what they did is they just handled it absolutely beautifully. They, they walked over quickly but very calmly with, a, yes. with smiles on their face, and they, they began to laugh and applaud and say, oh, what a good trick. That looks like so much fun. And immediately he began to laugh. What the parents <laughs> did, exactly, yes. what the parents did is they set a productive frame from which he could operate. And we can do that whenever we meet someone new or we begin a conversation or a negotiation or sales presentation or whatever it happens to be. We set the stage, we set the frame. Now, what about though when someone comes to the conversation in an already negative frame? Uh, They're upset about something or something happened or whatever. Let's, let's take a a sales situation where you're about to present to a prospect, but she's kind of uptight and she's defensive. And, you know, she lets, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm just looking, I'm not buying anything to whatever. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a good chance that she's probably had a, you know, an uncomfortable situation with a salesperson Mm -hmm. or what have you. So here's how we kind of reframe this. We might say, Mary, while we've been able to help a lot of people with this 
product, whether or not it's the right answer for you, we simply can't know without exploring deeper and determining whether it meets your needs. Mm. So please know our conversation is for both of us to discover this. And if it does, great. If not, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. So now we've, take, we've totally reframed this from, from an adversarial relationship, right? Uh, you know, the, the salesperson against the prospect, right. two people aimed in the same way, two, two allies looking to see what's going to be best for her. And I think it really dovetails into number four nicely to communicate with tact and empathy. Yes, this is this is where, you know, it really brings it at home. And again, I'm going to refer to the wisdom of my dad, who, as you can tell, has been a great mentor to me, along with my mom. I had have I still have great, great parents. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad had always said he always defined tact as the language of strength. Mm, I and like to me. Yeah, such a great definition because it takes a strong person to, again, control their own emotions, step into the other person's shoes, yeah. set the frame by asking yourself, okay, is what I'm about to say, is it going to be productive or counterproductive? Is it going to be helpful or hurtful? Is it going to strengthen or weaken it? Right. And so to me, tact is a way of communicating a message that otherwise may be difficult for someone to hear and doing it in such a way that rather than this person being uh, defensive toward you and resistant to your suggestions, they're open to you and they're much more open to considering your suggestions. That's really, that's really what tact allows you to do. And empathy is that kind of heart to heart a resonance with another person where stepping into another person's shoes is, is a bit more logical. This yeah. is more of a uh, empathy is more of a resonance. It's a feeling. It doesn't mean you necessarily, by the way, understand exactly how they feel because you might not. Right. Right. But it does mean that you communicate whether through words or, or how you say something or just simply who you are. It means you communicate that you understand their feeling something that may not be comfortable and that you're there to help them work through it. Yes, which is so powerful, as you know. Thank you. Yes, and number five, let go of having to be right. Now, does that mean you really don't care about anything? (laughs) That's a great (laughs) question because it it sounds like that. And here's the thing. In John's and my parables, what we typically do is we always have five of something, right? There were five laws and the go-giver and there were five principles and the the go-giver leader. There's five secrets in this one. And the first four, while they may or may not be counterintuitive at times, they tend to head in the same direction. And then the fifth one sort of goes in the opposite direction. We call it four fingers and a thumb, right? Mm -hmm. And and it sounds even counterproductive. Let go of having to be right. It sounds like you're saying, you know, I don't care about being right, but that's not what we're saying. In fact, you know, you should care about being right. Otherwise, why be in the conversation or, or do what you're doing? What it does mean, though, is it means you lose your attachment to mm-hmm. having to be right. Now, here's the paradox of this. That sounds like this will make you less influential when mm-hmm. it actually makes you more influential. Why? For two, two big reasons. One. When you let go of having to be right, you go into what we call learning mode or learner's mode. Yes. Um, when you are so 
attached to a position. And we see this all the time now, right? These days with politics mm-hmm. and other things where people are just, they, they are so absolutely entrenched in a certain position that um, they just, it's like, you know, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is already made up. Right. <laughs> they are not in learner's mode and they can't grow. They can't have any more information than they already have. They won't accept it. This is where confirmation bias comes in, which is just exactly what it says. If you come across some information, it either confirms your already held beliefs or biases or you ignore it. Again, you can't learn that way. That's weakness, not strength. Mm-hmm. Go into learner's mode and you begin to actually learn. Now you've got more information. It's been said that you, you, don't totally, you can't totally understand a topic until you can explain it from both sides, which doesn't mean you have to agree, right? But right. it means you can still understand their point or where they're coming from, why they're coming from. So that's the first thing. It actually gives us more information, more knowledge. The other reason is that when you come at it from, from learner's mode without that attachment to having to be right, this person who you're dealing with, they can sense that and they understand that they're dealing with someone who's not looking to defeat them, not looking to embarrass them, not looking to make them wrong, but someone who's simply seeking the truth. Yes. And now they are going to be much more relaxed and much more inclined to actually uh, buy into your viewpoint. Absolutely. I absolutely love that. I think that is, excuse me, so powerful and one of the cornerstones of your work. Well, thank you so much. You know, I, I, I see that we've really, you know, gotten to this point in the in communication and you put you almost have to put air quotes around communication yes. where people think that if you if you're, you know, polite or gracious or kind it means you're giving in or, and nothing could be further from the truth. We we should never we should never confuse tact with compromise. Mm. We can always speak tactfully to others. We can speak respectfully to others without compromising our values. Yes. And I have found, too, in terms of leadership, that when a leader has the ability to be transparent and real and raw appropriately, they Mm -hmm. really honor the value of the other person. Yeah. The other person feels that they are of great value and respected, and they're more inclined than to give back. Exactly. And I love how you said appropriately, because we've also got to know when the proper time and place is for just about anything. Yes. Have you needed to teach people the proper time or place? Oh, sure. Because I think people sometimes confuse authenticity with transparency. Ah, yes. You know, and so, and again, both have their time and place, but they're not necessarily the same thing. Right. Um, so, you know, if, if someone says, if you, let's say you have a bad back, okay, and, and you know, your back's hurting. Mm-hmm. And I hope it's not, heaven forbid, but let's just say it is. <laughs> yes. And, you know, uh, and you're meeting with a customer. And, you know, it's a customer who likes to get down a business and they don't really like a lot of small talk, you know, and so forth. And they say, hey, how are you today? You know, because they kind of feel like they have to say that. And sure. now transparency would be to say, well, truth be told, my back is really hurting me and blah, blah, blah. And I was up all night and blah, blah, blah. You know, that's transparent, but it's not appropriate right there. 
Right. Because that's not what your client wants to be talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, Now, when you go to the chiropractor later and the chiropractor says, how are you? Now you say, my back's hurting me, you know, or, or it might be appropriate with a friend or someone else. But so transparency, which I guess, you know, people take as just letting it all hang out and just, you, you know, every, no, it's not always appropriate. Authenticity mm-hmm. is always appropriate. So when this person, you know, asks, how are you doing? Uh, you, you can say fine, or you can say, you know, ready to get down to work or whatever it is you say, that, that's fine. Because you're being authentic, you're being you, and you're showing up to do what you're supposed to be doing. That's authentic. So, uh, you know, I think we have to know the, the, the differences and when the time and place is, is right. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. So we have a few more minutes, and I wanted to highlight something that I found very powerful um, myself as a professional and as a leader. I noticed on your website that there is opportunities to work with you in multiple programs. So one of them is the Certified Speaker Program. There's a Sales Academy, a Home Study. Share with us a little bit about, about those programs and how people can get in touch with you. Sure. Well, the Certified Go-Giver Speaker Program is for people um, who would like to be professional speakers, and they have either at some point in their life really enjoyed the, the principles of the Go-Giver, or maybe they had always been running their business that way long before they, you know, ever read the book and the book helped concretize it. Most of our speakers are people typically, you know, young middle age to middle age who are, who've already had a very successful career and now they sort of want to teach uh, the go-giver way. And and so what they do is they, they basically buy licensing rights from us to teach all of my intellectual properties I've developed over the past 30 years or so. Um, so that's a lot of fun. We have a great, great team of, of people and my business partner, Kathy Tejanel really runs it all, but we're both very involved. So it's ongoing training and teaching and and so forth. So that's a lot of fun. Our Go-Giver Sales Academy, which I think we may even change the name to Go-Giver Entrepreneurs Academy. The reason why is everyone there certainly is a salesperson, but we have a lot of entrepreneurs. And of course, as an entrepreneur, you're also a salesperson, But, um, but we tend to have more small bit, you know, either entrepreneurs, small business owners, or mm-hmm. salespeople for companies. And so we, we thought entrepreneur maybe, but it's two days. It's, it's two full days. We limit it to just 10 people because we go very, very deep into everyone's business mm-hmm. and we help them. And there's a real good mastermind uh, aspect too, because it's all successful people in the room sharing their ideas from their mm-hmm. different businesses. And we really go through the five uh, laws from the go-giver and how it how it applies to that person's business. So we help them to, to be able to market better, sell more, uh, be able to sell for higher prices and be able to be more profitable and help to serve uh, more and more people. So uh, again, just a lot of, a lot of fun. We, you know, I've, we don't do anything we don't have fun with. Let's Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And they look like they're just packed with information and oh, the ability to just soar into the go-giver mindset, which has been very, very successful and influential. Oh, thank you so much. Well, that's, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Absolutely. So finally, share with me, if you were to write a thank you letter to someone, who would you write it to? Oh, I'd write it to my parents, my mom and dad. You know, yeah. they just celebrated their 62nd anniversary. They're just an amazing couple. And I've been so very blessed to have them as parents. I would, I would write a thank you. Well, I have written thank you notes to them, but if I, if there was, if there was one, I'll, I'll include them as one person if, if I may in this, <laughs> yes. uh, 
Yeah, it, it, it would be thank you, mom and dad, for being the best mom and dad a, a person could have and being such a great example yeah. of people who love each other and love their children and, mm. and live life in a way that just sets a great example for others. Oh, that is wonderful. So share with the audience how they can get a hold of you. What is your contact information and if someone wants to reach out? Yeah, the best way is just to visit the website, which is The Go-Giver, without the hyphen, thegogiver.com. And they can click on any of the books that come up on the page, and it will take them to a page where they can get the first two chapters to read. And then if they like what they see that thus far, they can always uh, click through to order the book. And while they're there at the site, they can connect with me on the various social media. They can subscribe or listen to, you know, some of the podcast episodes and so forth. So we invite people to come to thegogiver.com and hang out and have some fun. Yes, your books have been an absolute treat. I have read every oh. one of them and have grown tremendously. Oh, you're so kind. Thank I you. I use them in my business coaching and I've even used them with counseling clients. So wow. I tell you, they are such a major influence in my life and I am grateful for the time that we had together today and for being on the show. Well, the, the pleasure and the honor is mine. Thank you so much. I love the work you're doing and the difference you're making in the world. Thank you for listening to Knights of the Revolutionary Leader, conversations of influence and change. Each show, we bring you a guest of revolutionary influence by living a life of nobility, courage, and authenticity. To meet other Knights of the Round Table or to be a guest on this show, go to christyknights.com. Join us next week as we cross the bridge to meet the next night to join the round table of revolutionary leaders of influence and change. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>